This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. I'm John Thornley and I'm speaking on behalf of the Wesley Broadway Weekly Show. We're on Manawatu People's Radio, courtesy of New Zealand On Air. This is our weekly programme and I'm going to be focused on an interesting topic titled Bob Marley and Rastafari. I'm going to share a story from Bob Marley's record producer, Chris Blackwell, showing how important Rastafari religion is for reggae music. It comes from his autobiography, which has recently been published. Blackwell was born to wealthy white Jamaicans. The recordings he made with Bob Marley beginning in 1970 must be his most important popular music contribution during his long career as music producer. Blackwell believed the story of Marley's recordings is significant, not because of all the money they earned for both artist and producer, but because of Bob Marley's underlying goal – not to be a rich man, but to change the world. Blackwell opens the chapter or the prologue of his book with this sentence I was 18 years old when a Rustler man saved my life. Now I'll read the rest of the prologue, a little editing to fit within our half hour, but mostly these are all the words written by Chris Blackwell. I was 18 years old when a Rasta man saved my life. I have sometimes embroidered the first part of the story to make me look a little less stupid and give the narrative a dramatic boost. I've said I was out at sea in a tiny sailboat all by myself, caught up in a violent storm. I thought I wasn't going to make it that the mast was struck by lightning and the boat was split and I was holding on to a charred piece of splintered hull and eventually thrown up against some rocks along a barren stretch of isolated coast whereupon I was knocked unconscious. The truth is a little more prosaic. I wasn't on my own. It wasn't a sailboat. I was out in a motorboat with a male friend from England whose name I cannot recall and a female companion who I do remember 
Her name was Lorraine. It was 1955. I was a directionless Anglo-Irish Jamaican boarding school flameout. That word means dropout. Who, for kicks, decided to take a boat ride on the Caribbean with his mates. We set off from Kingston Harbour, passing the sleepy fishing village of Port Royal. I was ashamed to say I hadn't filled up the boat's tank with enough petrol and we soon ran out of fuel. We pulled up on an unfamiliar stretch of shore. This didn't strike me as a problem. It was about five in the afternoon, not yet dark, and civilization was surely only a matter of minutes away. I'm speaking about the very area of Port Royal, which had once been the commercial centre of the world, although now it was supplanted by Kingston and Montego Bay. I directed my English friend to head inland on foot, assuming he would, by t- in time, come across a road. I stayed behind with the rain. For an hour or two, we bided our time blithely, thinking it wouldn't be long before he found help. But then events took a turn that requires no exaggeration to make dramatic. My friend suddenly reappeared, his face painted, his body covered in scratches and streaks of blood. He hadn't found anything but dense jungle. There's no way out, he said. The tide was coming in, and we huddled upon a small, shrinking sliver of beach. It was now past seven. I made an executive decision. We would lie down on the driest area of sand, and in the morning I would walk along the coast to find help. We slept under the stars as best we could. We didn't have much fresh water to drink, and we were hemmed in between the sea and what turned out to be not a proper coastline, but a treacherous mangrove swamp. In the right light and conditions, the mangroves are beautiful, a dense tangle of flora providing shelter for hundreds of animal species. But to us, they were more menacing than anything else. The bird and insect sounds that normally seemed a gentle, dreamy part of the coastal ambience now seemed to be warnings of impending doom. In the morning I set out. At low tide, when the ground was cracked and dry, it was easy to walk among the roots. But soon the crusty surface gave way to thick mud. The mangroves became a combination of labyrinth and quicksand, exceedingly difficult for me to navigate. I somehow managed to walk for hours, looking for any kind of clearing, shouting for help. I had foolishly set off without taking any of the water we had. 
a cocksure white boy who at this point had never thought of Jamaica as anything but a delightful Garden of Eden. The sea was always a liberation, never a trip. Even during this walk, the water was a lovely teal colour under the green canopy of the mangroves. But there was no safe harbour to swim to. A deep thirst started to kick in. At one point I reached a small section of beach that seemed to be moving. I thought I was delirious, hallucinating under the hot midday sun. Eventually, I realised the moving beach was actually thousands of crabs, a writhing mass of them crammed together between the sea and the mangrove forest. As I got closer, they got excited darting around my feet as lizards. I had no defence. If they chose to come after me as hungry predators, I was a definite goner. What an exit. (laughs) Death by crabs. By late in the afternoon, I was still walking, still searching beyond hope. My thirst had advanced from serious to desperate, and I was scarily weak. But in a small clearing, I spied a tiny, lopsided wooden hut held together with bits of string. It was the first sign of life I had seen for hours. We might be saved after all. Adrenalised, I walked towards the hut and looked through a little window, really just a crude, cut-out hole. To my terror, I, lie, I laid eyes on the first Rastafari I had ever seen in my life. He was a bearded man, an inscrutable man. His hair was long, stiff and marred, as though made of bark. He looked like he was somewhere between being as old as time and as young as me. He was wearing the kind of basic shirt and trousers that didn't seem to have ever been bought at a shop. Maybe he'd made them himself or found them at the side of the road. Badly dehydrated, utterly lost and near collapse, I now stood face to face with one of the Blackheart men, as they were named by mainstream Jamaican people. The Blackheart men that Anglo-Jamaican parents warn their kids about. I had heard a little about the so-called cult of Rastafarianism. The Rastas were eccentrics who swore allegiance to the emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, whom they believed to be the Messiah incarnate. They traced their origins to the 1930s, when a black Jamaican preacher named Leonard Howe became the first person to call himself a Rastafari. Rastafari. 
Hal grew out his beard, having seen a photograph of Heidi Selassie on the cover of Time magazine. Bearded and handsome in a brocaded uniform and sash. Haile Selassie's civilian name was Tafari Makonin. Ras was a noble honorific or title. Ras plus Tafari equaled Rastafari. If you grew up in white Jamaican society in the 1940s and 50s, as I did, you were conditioned to see these Rasta men more as a violent gang than a new religious order or social movement. The colonial government viewed the Rastas as a threat and there were folklore horror stories of Rastas capturing, burning and sacrificing children. They spoke in a mangled, cryptic dialect that signalled a headstrong disregard for English rule. They wore their hair in knotted plaits called dreadlocks, which made them look intimidating. I never quite bought into this propaganda, as the Rastafari had never caused harm to me or anyone I knew. The Rastas deliberately kept their distance, absenting themselves from a white society that held them in ill regard. They populated the working-class areas of Montego Bay. They roamed the black sand beaches of Jamaica's south coast and set up communities in the bush up in the hills, far away from my stomping grounds in upper-class Kingston. But because I had never so much laid my eyes upon a rasta, they still existed in my head as bogeymen. In my confused, parched states, on the verge of passing out, I looked at the man before me and thought, this might be the end. Instead, he beckoned me towards him, motioning me into his rickety beach hut. Defaulting to my ingrained English-style politeness, I absurdly asked the man, Do you, by chance, have some water? Immediately, I noticed an ethereal gentleness about him. Moving with a dancer's grace, he brought me a little gourd filled with water. Whatever fears I had felt moments earlier, instantly dissipated. Still wobbly and faint, I asked the man if I could lie down. He carefully prepared a space for me in the corner of the hut, and within seconds I was asleep. Two or three hours later, I awoke to find five more rusters in the hut along with my host. The six of them sat around 
softly reading to each other from the Bible. For a split second, my fear returned. Oh God, there's more of them. But the first thing that they did upon seeing that I was awake was offering me some idle food. Idle being the ruster term derived from vital, describing their plant-based diet, which, according to their philosophy, imbued people with energy and good health while not bringing death to God's creatures. Once again, I was almost overcome by the incredible mystic gentleness that surrounded me. These were good men of faith. They were not burning children or plotting a violent revolution. Without hesitation, they had taken me in and looked after a frail, helpless white boy who had stumbled across them and collapsed in their midst. As I ate, they carried on reading to each other from the Bible, discussing among themselves what they were reading. Thoughtful debate and exchange seemed an important part of their lives. Once I had regained my strength, they took me by boat back to Port Royal. While I was sleeping, they had found my boat and my friends. When I got to the port, my friends were there, having also been rescued by these kind, enigmatic outsiders who exuded mysterious, uplifting warmth and generosity. It had been an incredible, life-changing experience. It would be another 17 years before I began working with Rastafarian's most celebrated advocate and ambassador, namely Bob Marley. Reggae didn't yet exist, nor for that matter did its precursor, ska music. But a seed was planted that day, When I recorded the classic first Bob Marley and the Whalers sessions in the late 1960s, I appreciated how Rastafari teachings were the soulful centre of reggae music. Rasta, the soul of reggae music. Also, I had begun to understand the important contribution that Rastafarians were making to the culture and future of Jamaica as the nation moved towards independence from British rule. And finally, never would I have imagined at that point in my late teen years that in a matter of decades these peaceful men with dreads would form a central part of Jamaica's international destiny.
enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.